Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Drew DePriest, Facility Management Technology Lead at CBRE, and Kat West, Vice President of Sustainability at JLL. We walked through a day in the life of a digitized and decarbonized building. What are its major features? What challenges are there? Where can technology help? And what are the major themes that come up throughout that fictional day and in our transition to it as an industry? So without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Drew DePriest and Kat West. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. It's it's great to have you guys on. Drew, can we start with you? Can you introduce yourself? Sure thing. James, thanks for having us both. My name is Drew DePriest. I've been in this industry for almost 20 years, right out of my undergraduate career. I'm currently working at CBRE. I'm a facilities management technology lead. So a lot of the things that you've talked about on the podcast that you get into with the the, the Nexus sessions. Uh, or right up my right up my alley, very much my jam. So I'm one of those longtime listeners, first time caller type deals. So happy to be here. Happy for a what I think is going to be a, a dynamic conversation. And we've we've all agreed that we're not just going to head nod to everything that everybody says here, which is going to be fun. Awesome. Let's let's go into your background first before we bring on Kat. Can you talk about how you got like all your roles before a CBRE? Sure thing. So. Coming out of, of undergrad, I did a, a bachelor's degree in systems engineering, and I was a web developer at the time. This was 20 years ago. Oh, wow. The internet was was barely a thing. Google had just rolled out PageRank. We, we still had Ask Jeeves and Yahoo Maps and yeah. all kinds of, of everything else. So I, I never really found anything that I was at a, a crossroads coming out of undergrad. Do I go become like a full engineer and design things, or do I go off and try to build websites and the you know web had just crashed in the late 90s. So oddly enough, control systems and BMS were the first thing I found that really combined both of those things. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I get very much into, you know, just the, I was on top of a ladder. I was programming VAVs and chiller plants straight out of college and was building, we were a Tritium and Honeywell and Reliable shop in the old days. So I was building the actual user interface on top. So for me at the time, that was... I yeah. was a kid in a candy store. It was great. So I, I stayed uh, in that space for about 12 years, worked my, my way up to a regional spot within Automated Logic or ALC, decided to have some fun and took a, a little side journey to a, a startup company called Building Robotics, whose flagship product at the time was what's now uh, the global behemoth known as Comfy. It was acquired by Siemens in 2018. It, from there, so that took me from kind of above the ceiling to down to above the desk in terms of workplace technology. Mm-hmm. And from, from there, pivoted into uh, a workplace tech role at, at Aon. So I was managing anything at a desk, anything in a conference room, and then anything like this that people use to collaborate digitally. And that was my team. We owned all of it from a tech perspective. From there, I rolled into CBRE. I spent my first couple of years here on our, our host digital platform, expanded it out to, to broader digital workplace, IoT, mobile access, kind of all of all of the buzzwords that we all talk about and have been very fortunate to, to join a global technology account 
about nine months ago. So I've had one of those kind of once in a decade, once in a career projects to work on, which has been super exciting. And that brings us to today. Cool. Very cool. Such a such a diverse background. And you you joined us last week. Also, when this comes out, it won't be last week, but while we're recording this, it was last week for our Next Foundation's career planning workshop, which was super fun. And the reason I wanted to have you on is because you've had all of these different perspectives, which are so cool. I'd love to hear, are, are you distant enough from the comfy situation where you can talk about it at this point? Yeah, and I have, I have nothing but, but positive, fond memories. I mean, that the crew that I worked with from 2016 to 2018, like that's, that's one of my bars now for just... Yeah. A, a great group of just good humans who were brilliant and willing to try new things, even if the world is saying, Hey, we're not ready for this yet. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, I was just wondering what your general experience was. It sounds like you answered it. It sounds like a pretty cool, you came on, you weren't a founder. You came on after the, the product team had the, had the product developed. You came on in the business development role, I think. And then you went Correct. through the acquisition. So I, I came on post, it was one of the, the, rounds of funding. It was the, the $12 million round, the A or the B. And I, I was in business development. I was calling on, you know, just anybody that we could, we could get a hold of really at mm -hmm. the time. And this was so, oh my goodness, almost six years ago now. And to think about the contrast then, I'd get in a room with a facility manager or a chief engineer and we'd tell them what we wanted to do. Like we want to put your building, connect it to the internet and then let anybody kind of nudge it one way yeah. or the other for their yeah. own personal comfort. And it was, sometimes we'd have a bet of like, how long before someone says, are you serious? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there were some who would just straight wouldn't engage the conversation. Like, no, that's absurd. That will never happen. And then, you know, here we are six years later and the, the, that ecosystem has exploded. So I am, I still keep in, in good touch with a, a, lot of, a lot of my teammates from those days. Yeah, it was just, just a fun time. And it, it's cool to see the industry has, has come so far ever since. Yeah. And I'm just, just thinking about six years ago, the, the concept of what I call advanced supervisory control, you know, controls coming from the cloud um, still hasn't taken off. And yet there is this one use case, this one application that's been doing it, been around for a long time and has achieved scale and that kind of thing. So it's just a cool story to point back to, I, I bet. Oh, yeah. No, it was when I first saw it, it was it struck me as one of the most forward-looking, innovative things I'd ever seen. And then once once I went to work there and really got to see it under the hood, it was like, yeah, this is this is a, a very, very unique once in a very long time mm -hmm. place technology and place to be. And to your point, like it's it, it's it's held true. We still have a long way to go at, at that level, but I'm, I'm proud to have been at, at that place somewhat early. Yeah, I think some sometime we should bring all the founders together and like talk about you know all the all the, all the stumbling blocks, but that, that's a different conversation. I do want to bring in Kat here. So Kat, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, James. So great to be here. Also, longtime listener, first time participant. So I studied environmental law at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and was able to run the environmental club there. We did a lot of work on recycling and bothered some of the facility building engineers about why aren't these LEED certified buildings. We improved recycling. 
we bought wind energy offsets or renewable energy certificates for Earth Day and some of the major events like homecoming. We really liked to educate people about sustainability, make it easy and fun. We would have people write letters to their congressperson and we didn't want to be hypocritical, so we offset our energy use with renewable energy certificates. Then when it came time to graduate, I contacted the salesperson who was selling us the renewable energy certificates and I said, could you give me some paper made with wind energy so I can put my resume on it? And this gentleman said, no, just come work for me. <laughs> so that's how I got my first job in sustainability, working for a renewable energy certificate seller. I would go to farmers markets and town festivals selling renewable energy to individual consumers for about like seven, $10 extra a month and sell to mayors of small towns in Connecticut. There was a really cool program where if a hundred people paid for a little bit extra for renewable energy on their electric bill, their town got a one kilowatt solar array to put on any town building. So it was a really good public private partnership that got people in the towns really motivated. Uh, I was working for that company and they said, uh, we're headquartered in Norcross, Georgia. So could you move down here? And I packed up what could fit in my 81 cubic foot Toyota Corolla and just came on down to Atlanta, Georgia, where I've been the director of sustainability for JLL. Uh, I had a, a point there where I worked for uh, Sterling Planet, the renewable energy certificate company. Mm -hmm. and really really enjoyed that working on carbon offsets and greenhouse gas emissions accounting but i felt i got a little a little bit uh, bored and my coworker shouted over the cubicle that he was studying for his lead green associate exam so i went ahead and did that too and then ended up working for this commissioning and engineering company called energy ace okay. that was awesome so i worked there before coming to my home at jll where i've been for seven years i started at jll to work on the brave stadium which oh, was okay. really fun. So I work on a lot of like ground up new construction, tenant fit outs, green leasing standards, and I get really passionate about integrative design. So working with the architects and engineers to make a building that works for the facilities managers and the occupants. So it's a place that people can thrive. Got it. And and what so what what's your current role at JLL and and what because JLL is a big big, massive company. Can you talk about like what your what your group does specifically? Certainly. I'm on the project development services team and I'm a vice president of sustainability, the director in the Southeast. So I lead a team of 10 individuals working on ESG strategy. On new construction. Specific buildings. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And how, how, long, how did you guys meet? The, the two of you so sort of came to me with this concept of a podcast. And how, how did you guys, how did you guys come together? I researched this. Uh, I looked into my LinkedIn messages and Drew was posting a lot of really cool internet of things or indoor air quality sensor posts. Uh -huh. And I reached out to him because that's something I'm interested in. Yeah, right. it's, it's the classic, the web 2.0 generation of you, <laughs> you start interacting with a lot of interesting people. Uh, for me, it's been a lot of LinkedIn, a lot of Twitter. And then over time, you know, like, oh, well, cats talking about the same things that I am and has a different perspective on things. So it'd be really cool to, to convert kind of the, the social friends into in real life friends. And here we are. Nice. Nice. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is 
overall ESG and sustainability. So I, I very much feel that that was my calling in my career. You know, I had someone come visit me when I was a senior, I was in a sustainable energy course and I was like, I have no idea what I want to do for my career, but I know it's in this direction. Right. And then someone came and spoke and, and she came from a mechanical contractor and I was like, okay, I guess I'll go that, you know, that direction within this overall umbrella. I'd love to hear from you guys. Like, it sounds like Kat, we'll start with you. It was similar. You were in college and that you knew that was a direction you wanted to head. Do I have that right? And, and how did you get into buildings specifically? Yes, well, I remember sitting in my college library like it was yesterday and I had read the intergovernmental, intergovernmental panel on climate change report and then saw a trailer for an inconvenient truth all while I was about to write a paper for my environmental law class. So you just and had an existential <laughs> crisis. Yeah, I wrote this 17 page paper where I quoted Nellie, it's getting hot in here. And I got an A plus and I just said, this is the universe telling me I need to go into sustainability. And <laughs> okay. the, the, building, the buildings I like because it's a physical manifestation of our values. So we're taking our money and putting it somewhere that you can see if somebody yeah. has a building that is truly net zero and set up to have composting, electric vehicle charging, bike racks that really protect your bike, shower so that people can shower after they bike to work. To me, it's a physical manifestation of the fact that you care about your employees, you wanna do what's right for the environment. And I just love taking that abstract concept and putting it into something real that you can touch. That's so well said. Drew, what was your, what, what's your motivation? How do you sort of, do you, do you, I mean, you said you kind of stumbled into, okay, this is a technology I'm interested in. Where did the sustainability piece come in for you? I think from, from me, after the first, maybe first year of just being a BMS field tech, starting to really learn the core philosophy of, for me, it was a challenge. You know, how do you, you, you find that, that balance between how low can we drive energy consumption while also keeping a building comfortable and habitable such that people will continue to go there. And at, after a while, you just kind of, kind of understanding, you know, you can, that's, that's the perpetual balance that we find ourselves in. And over time, that's, that's evolved to get to a place where, especially the last probably five or six years, we're, we're really leaning hard into the human side, but, but still very much, I mean, even in the short time, I feel like I've been in the industry, the, the advances in, in how we're operating a building, it's, it, we're, we're, we're getting down almost as far as we can go from a, just a physics perspective of how many kilowatt hours and BTUs can you just ring out of a building? So for me, that's, it's, it's just always been this, it's a fun, purposeful challenge of, you know, here's something we can control on the demand side, how much further can we take it? And it all kind of wraps into a lot of the things that I know Kat works on to really, you know, kind of paint the full picture moving forward. Yeah, and that that challenge or that puzzle, I view it kind of like a puzzle. How do we how do we make this happen in every building long term? It feels a lot like to me like there's plenty of runway here to stay in this problem for a really long time. Is that how you guys feel too? I think so. There's the opportunity is certainly big and and it's pressing <clears throat> from a motivation perspective. You always hear about if you want people to act and, and do something, give them a hard deadline and, and a finite scope. 
Yeah, we, we, we certainly do. Th things are changing very quickly. Kat, what about you? Yeah, that's where I'm excited to see how we achieve net zero because a lot of buildings are attempting to generate all of the power that they use with on-site solar panels. And to do that, you have to analyze the data about things like plug loads, uh, how much ventilation and heating and cooling load is on the building. And Drew, I liked how you referenced Ask Jeeves because I remember using Ask Jeeves back in the day and then I would code my AOL profile with HTML. And so I believe that a lot of people around the elder millennial age, they expect buildings to be smarter than they are. And mm -hmm. so it's pretty cool when we can get it right. And right now it might take a lot of analysis, collaboration, coordination and, and time like money spent on getting things to work exactly how we want them to. But I would like to see that become the norm in the next 10 or 20 years where the buildings are smart. They're giving feed, feed two-way feedback, you know, between the building and the occupants. With that, I feel like it's a good time to jump into our, our exercise, our fun exercise for the day, let's call that. So what we're going to do is walk through a day in the life of a digitized and decarbonized building and sort of, I want to hear from you guys as we go through this, where we're at, what are the challenges, what are the potential opportunities for making that a better experience, like you said, two-way communication, Kat? So who wants to kick us off? What's the beginning of, of the day in the life? I can jump in. So the way that, that we've kind of laid this out, I feel like the especially on the experience technology side. Folks have been thinking about this one for a couple of years. I've seen it in my time with, with host at CBRE and just kind of the way that everyone else has built this up. So start from the beginning of your day. You wake up in the morning and initially a series of decisions you have to start making. After the last two and a half years of a pandemic, this has become even more strong of a use case. Where am I gonna work for the day? And that decision, as we go through this exercise, will have some significant impact on carbon footprint, on productivity, and all of these things that kind of all swirl together. So what, what has been interesting, there have been a number of, I've seen a handful of startups pivot toward this sort of, the two-way communication that Kat is talking about, of mm -hmm. helping to socialize and plan for, am I gonna, am I gonna work from home? Am I gonna go to a co-working space? Am I going to go to a physical office? And for me, the most exciting part, the most useful part has been the, the socialization of everything. I mean, if you live in, I live in the Midwest or somewhere in the North where we get snow and in the old days of three years ago, we would be sending emails or, or test, texting like members of our team of, hey, it's supposed to snow six inches tomorrow. So I'm probably not going to come in. I'm not going to plan to have any in-person meetings in that case with, with James or with Kat, whereas Today, what, what I'm starting to see more of and is kind of exciting is to have an app or something in a, in a calendar function to show like, hey, tomorrow you, you've got a meeting with James and with Kat and you're both planning to come to the office. You've signaled somehow, either through an email, through a calendar or something that you're all coming, that helps make that decision for you. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a degree of, of social proof, which, Anytime you go to a bar, the tip jar always has a few dollars in it. It's intentionally so because it's, oh, cool, then I'm tipping too. In, in this case, the social proof part is two of my, my, my colleagues that I work with are going to a physical space. 
I should go to, and that, that makes it even, even more, more interesting. It, it's more collaborative that way. So I, I would start with what's the decision when I get up, am I working from home? Am I going into a building? Yeah. And the first thing I think of when you say that is what happened during the pandemic, right? When all those people made those decisions, Hey, I'm not going in for good reason, right? Our buildings didn't respond to that in any way. So you mentioned the sustainability aspect. I can't remember what it was, but there was a lot of, uh, of data around buildings dropping their energy use, either not at all or very little, right? And so from a sustainability standpoint, I feel like the building of the future is going to need to be able to then operate itself based on that data that comes in, right? Yeah, spot on. It's, it's the ability to, as we talked about a little bit in the intros of eventually a building learning its own occupancy, you know, after it may take after the first month of the pandemic in a, in a perfect future state, that building or that portfolio would have started to learn from patterns to say, oh, well, it's been a month and nobody's coming in. So I guess I don't need to be at 72 degrees and 40% humidity You're seven right. to five all day anymore. Yeah. Um, Definitely. People are going to be checking the weather. They may also be checking the indoor air quality. In our office, we have an indoor air quality sensor and I'm able to check it easily on my phone. I can tell when the landlord starts ventilating the building. And so I adjust my daily schedule based on when I know there will be excellent indoor air quality in the building. That's funny. So I'm wondering how that works technically, right? So what does what is, what is your reading say at say 7 a.m. versus how do you know when, when it's time to go in? So I edited my story a little because I'm a night owl and I was literally going into the office sometimes at like midnight, but that that just sounds a bit much. <laughs> gotcha. I'm going to stop gotcha. talking now. <laughs> well, I think that's an important aspect of it is like people use the office in different ways, right? The office of the future, the digitized decarbonized office of the future, right? Yes. Right. And I would go to a co-working space at night, but I didn't have the data. So it's like, how much data do you want to share with the mm -hmm. occupants? interesting yeah that is that's a big that could be its own separate podcast topic if you're putting things in the in the parking lot slash bike rack james that's i've had that conversation for probably the last that goes back to the lead days of the heyday of probably 15 years ago i we would we would talk to to certain building owners or chief engineers to say you know this city of chicago city of new york are starting to require that you know you need to publish how efficient your buildings are and a lot of them would just they just go like this they wrap it up they don't they don't want to to share with people because it, there's a there's a certain degree of of assumption of, of risk on some people for for right or wrong like you know i'm hearing similar conversations with folks that i've talked to in the last couple of years around indoor air quality data and i mean to cat's point like i'm the same way i take i've got this little airnet 4 Thing that I've been taking everywhere, literally everywhere. It's been my, if this thing turns red, I get out, I leave the building, full stop. <clears throat> or go open a window or, or something. So I think there's a lot to be discussed still around, I mean, for, for all of this kind of day in the life we're talking about, how much data can and should be shared about a facility that a large group of people go into? Mm -hmm especially now that a lot of people, not just, not just we well fans and, and IEQ nerds, everybody wants to know what's in the air. 
and I think there's a lot of conversation around how much are a lot of buildings willing to share. Yeah, I think I think that's a perfect maybe potential. We'll, we'll start to I'll start to make a list of themes that we can maybe summarize all this at the end. But where my mind went to, and you guys started talking about that, was what does this technology that needs to provide this look like? Because you have all these inputs on one side and you have these outputs on the other side, which are scheduling the right rooms, um, potentially HVAC modifications. Like th there's a piece of technology here that we're talking about that sounds pretty complicated compared to a lot of the like basically applications that we have today, right? So I think that's maybe one thing that I would, I would throw out there as a potential theme later. Unless you guys have seen this happening where all of these things we've talked about are active in a building somewhere. It's, it's very rare. And I'm sure if you ask that question in one of your sessions or in a podcast like this, you'll get a handful that'll say, oh yeah, we can do. We can do that. 80% 80, 80 mm -hmm. of that, right. Yeah. Or in theory, the product is there, but it's the, the execution piece that they yeah. don't think we're at scale yet. Totally. One thing before we move on to the next step in the day is you mentioned social proof and I have to call out the book behind you, Influence. Definitely recommend that one. If, if no one knows what social proof means, definitely check out The Six Weapons of Influence. Okay, yes. what's, the next, what's the next step in the day here? We're deciding so, to go to work? Is that, is that what we're deciding? Yeah, let's, let, let, let's go to an office, you know, for, okay. for old time's sake. So I, I think something I'd be curious to, to Kat's take on how do we get there? And there's some assumption for this exercise of, do you live in a, a major city? Are you further out in the suburbs? Each of your possible choices is going to have a carbon impact. And yep. I, you know, from a technical perspective, certainly things that, that could be arranged through a technology, but I, I am more curious, Kat, your take from kind of the broader ESG, policy approach you know how are how are companies thinking about like do they care if i ride a bike or if i drive my hummer or you know what is what are going through conversations you're having we definitely care as sustainability professionals in real estate we want to enable people to make choices that are good for the environment and convenient so it starts with picking a building that has amenities such as being next to public transportation, having adequate bike racks. And then some companies are providing showers with very nice amenities, similar to a fancy gym to get people to bike to work. It's something that we think will start to be included more and more in the carbon emissions calculations that companies are calculating as part of their reporting. And so where you locate your building which can be influenced through a green leasing criteria, which we're seeing gain popularity, uh, can definitely help people get set up so that they can get to work in a way that doesn't involve a single occupancy vehicle, which typically is the most polluting. Can you explain that, that connection between the green lease and the location of the building? How does that work? Certainly, so some companies have hired JLL to make a list of items to look for in buildings. So they're obviously looking for a location where there's talent, but they also may look for things like being next to public transportation, having increased ventilation in the building, areas for EV charging stations, hmm. rainwater capture, because a lot of companies have 
really ambitious goals around water efficiency and carbon reduction. So the base building that they may go into as a tenant really enables them to achieve those goals. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. That's super compelling to, to hear that a lot of those things you mentioned, Kat, you know, proximity to public transportation, enhanced ventilation. I feel like those have been kind of core staples of, of both lead and, and well over the last five, 10 years. And to hear that there's now a, a hook financially within a lease agreement to do it, that, that feels like that will drive some change. It's not just, you know, just not to over, oversimplify or, or disrespect, you know, it's not just a lead seal or, a, you know, the well logo on your front door. If that's in your lease, that's, that's got some power. I would think. Okay, so how do we get to work then? How, will, will there be some sort of technology that will tell us which way to go, or what's the what's the tech stack, or what's the what's the the future building going to do for us in this regard? I think I, ideally there's there's a handful of things, and it, all depending on which mode you take. I think there's going to be a point in time where a lot of the things Cat is talking about will roll into this you know, anticipatory building or, or destination of the future where you may get prompted to say, if you are driving, here's the the most, most sustainable, least carbon emitting route to go. Otherwise, here's suggestions, here's the next train, here's the, the closest bike or, or scooter rental thing that all have just kind of hooks into all these other systems. I've seen a handful of startups who have done this pretty well over the last couple of years to the point that they can start kind of nudging people of, hey, this, this public train is, is going to be within two stops of your house in the next 10 minutes. You should leave now. So it's more of the, the behavioral nudge that I think is with pattern detection with a number of systems all tied together. That's where it's going to start to you know, kind of leverage these, these ESG and, and carbon goals to help kind of you know, push people in the right direction, if you will. Uh, of take the bike or take the train instead of instead of driving your car and then once you do get there any number of automation in terms of until you drove your car you know parking in terms of what's the closest space do we have ev chargers on site you know can we kind of direct people uh, to those spots as well as well as a lot of the amenities cats talked about with showers and, and bikes i think there's a, a lot to be to be done there as well in terms of, of managing the occupancy like if everybody is going to ride their bike in because it's 65 outside and everybody comes in at eight there's going to be a line so some some element of you know maybe kind of stagger people as they come in or just give them a notification to say showers are super busy right now unless you plan on going going straight to your meeting, super sweaty, you know, go ride another mile. And, and by the time you get here, everybody should be out of the way. So it, it's more, I see it as just kind of leveraging all these different various technology platforms to kind of give people context more than anything and allow them to make decisions for themselves, as well as keeping an eye on, this is what my carbon footprint is going to change because of what I decided to do. Yeah, and similar to how if you put your running shoes and your clothes right right by the door or right right when you get out of bed you're more likely to go exercise if you could have that nudge where when you walk over the threshold of your door it says hey public transit is coming in one minute one minute 
or biking, you haven't exercised in X days, if you bike, it will be beneficial for you, giving you that nudge so that you make the decision that's healthier and more sustainable. What is the overlap between the types of use cases we're talking about here and tenant or workplace mobile applications? I think it's very similar. To be candid, a lot of what I'm pulling out of my brain are from just being in that space the yeah. last five years. Yeah, it's That's what, it's what a lot of a lot of those platforms are have either already moved to or are starting to move to. Just it's going to be an open marketplace at a certain point. Like if you have a a transit app that's hooked into every public transit and all the ride shares, you know, we need a container, you know, put it into a single place. It's kind of like your traffic control for all these different services. Mm -hmm. And then there are Got different it. camps on the privacy side. I would welcome an automation that said, you have these meetings that are within two miles of each other and you don't have anywhere you need to go far away after work. So go ahead and take your bike. Hmm. Mm -hmm. but other other people may want more privacy and say i will run all those analyses in my head on my own <laughs> yeah yeah hey guys just another quick note from our sponsor nexus labs and then we'll get back to the show this episode is brought to you by nexus foundations our introductory course on the smart buildings industry if you're new to the industry this course is for you if you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. All right, so there was one other thread that I forgot in the middle of that, that I hope comes back to me and maybe I'll come back, but what's the next, what's our next step after we get to the office. So we've arrived at the building through any number of, of ways to get us from point A to point B. We, we kind of skipped through, you know, just getting in through security. Maybe there's a gym that's on site. You know, some, some folks like their workout first thing in the morning. I think the, the next area that Kat and I had, had kind of wanted to, to anchor on it is more around food in the building. So hmm. either, you know, kind of a large, class A multi-tenant where there's a giant food court or, or things going on in the lobby, or if it's a corporate occupier and, and they provide breakfast or lunch or coffee bars or what have you. I think from a, there's a couple of ways to, to, to look at it from kind of the energy and energy perspective on the engineering side. A lot of, of those type facilities uh, are going, going to have to start finding ways to adapt from more gas powered kind of source of, of heating and, and cooking food to a lot of where the carbon free push is moving is is focused on electrification. So if, if those are not currently ways that any food provider or restaurants or you know even the coffee shops, if they're leveraging natural gas for ovens to, to heat things up, then that's going to be a, a pretty significant infrastructure challenge, I would think. Kat, I know you've got many, many thoughts around the, the food service side from an ESG perspective as well. Well, I love when food is something that ties into the community. I, I don't like walking into an office building and feeling like I could be anywhere. I love when there's some education about local honey or vegetables from community supported agriculture. 
I see that as a way of real estate being more inspiring. At our offices, we have beehives and it's something we point out on a regular basis to visitors and everybody seems to think it's really cool. In addition, it's some of the best honey you can get and it helps fight allergies. So nice. we really like the food being something that builds community, not something more bland that you could find anywhere. I love it. Yeah, the the both of those things are super interesting. Those different threads are interesting. The community building and the electrification piece. And I think the cooking on the electrification side, I think there's a huge reckoning to be had, not just on the infrastructure, the installing the right devices, but also with the cooks, right? That that aspect of, you know, there's this great article in the New York Times around, you know, the perception of cooks needing their blue flames, right? And then, you know, giving them the opportunity to try an induction stove and then seeing how they like it. And it seems like most people get used to it in a couple of days, a couple of meals that they cook, but it takes that number one infrastructure and then number two is behavior change to get over that hump and i just see that as a huge obstacle when it comes to every appliance every device that we have not just a stove right but i think this the kitchen is where it really hits like the rubber hits the road because it's out in front and center of you know it's at the core of these people's profession which is a really interesting aspect of electrification I've seen the electrification of cooking go smoothly when it's a new building. For example, there was a multifamily project and everybody who bought into that building got a set of cookware that worked with the new induction stoves. It was a way to make it really positive. Interesting. You get this gift and it's, <laughs> it's a part of this transition. What about the, the, waste aspect. So I'm reading this book called Waste-Free World right now. It's really, really good book. It's about all these innovations to create a more circular economy. So how about like, what will the, the building of the future look like? And it's one of my assignments that I've given myself is that when I get this book done, I'm going to write something like this, but I'm, I'm going to you guys first before I write it. What, what do you think from a waste standpoint, the building of the future looks like? I see a huge educational opportunity with regard to composting. Mm. In our offices, we started composting and had a great partnership with a local organization who started to sign their emails instead of saying thanks. They said to building soils and we were laughing a little bit and then it was very educational eventually when you thought about it for a couple of days because you start to see it not as waste but as a nutrient that goes into a whole cycle. And mm. so I could see an educational component where somebody isn't picking what bin to throw something into, but they are contributing to healthy soils, which then grow healthy food, which nourish healthy people. And some fraction of the population will like that. Another fraction just wants it to be as easy as possible. So you, yeah. have, to, you have to build for both. Right, right, totally. Composting is huge. What about the recycling side of things? I would love if there was more of a national recycling program, because the thing that I'm noticing is that there needs to be education for every region. So if you have a building with the same population on a daily basis, you can educate them. But if you have a, an event facility, it's a little bit harder. For example, if you have a stadium or 
a concert venue, you need to have really clued in signage that is worded in a way someone can read in an instant. Mm -hmm. So I see the building of the future perhaps have a scanner so that you don't have to do all of that thinking and you can scan the item and it'll tell you which bin to put it in. I'm not as big a proponent of the single stream recycling. In my experience, that is confusing to people because they think everything is being thrown away. So I like the idea of bringing some technology into it where you can tell what materials are in the product and that could be an educational moment. Yeah, absolutely. And those exist, but they're quite expensive now. So I just see them becoming more, more mainstream. Right. I'm hearing a lot of, of change management. It feels like a lot of these things that are a little new, a little different for people that, you know, if it's composting, if, if it's recycling, Kat, to your point around, if something is simple and easy and it's well-marked, like I, I've been in corporate cafeterias or, or food courts in the past where I have no clue. Like there's a, a blue bin and a green bin and a, and a regular trash. I, I don't know what goes where. So I ended up just throwing everything in the, into one spot. Whereas others who have been doing this for a while, and you know, as, as you mentioned, what I've seen a lot of the large corporate occupiers because they're, it's, it's part of their culture. It's, it's just, they have certain ways of, of doing things and the people that work there, you know, they just kind of get it. It's just part of their everyday routine. It's much easier to, to drive that change in behavior than it would be if, you know, the, the flip side that, again, back to the, the large class A multi-tenant where you've got 50 different companies that all work there. There's no single cohesive culture to anything You've got people, guests floating in and out all the time. You know, it's it's a lot harder to drive people there to to do things differently, especially around kind of waste management activities. Definitely. Lately, the best practices I've seen are designing for durables, otherwise known as ceramic cups and plates, so that mm. you're not generating a lot of trash and then slowly transitioning to using more of the utensils that you could wash and reuse, but there is that bridge step of using compostable utensils. And that's where in my role, I will facilitate a conversation between the operations and catering team and the design team, because we need to have the right bins and then we need to buy the right compostable items to have it hmm. all work as a system. And oftentimes those people aren't speaking to each other. So that's one of the things I really like about my role is integrating everything so it works seamlessly. Interesting. Yeah, the, the same silos we have today could be there in the future, building of the future, right? So we need someone to kind of go and be that bridge between all the different silos in the organization. Love that. Okay, should we keep going? What's next? Sure. I think the, the, the next real kind of general section that we'd all sort of brainstorm through is now that you're in an actual building, just the, the building of the future supporting the full spectrum of activities that people will go to an office for. And that's mm -hmm. going to vary. That's going to vary by person. That's going to vary by team. In some cases, by location. There's been a, a lot of good work. I've seen coming out of Leesman, the, the group who's kind of pioneered this, for lack of a better term, surveys to help understand how people need to use a space and then also evaluating how that space supports any of the, I think there are 22 tasks that any one person could do in a space from, I have heads down focus work, I need to take a phone call, I need to go collaborate 
with a whiteboard somewhere to a video call, all these different things. So I think there's a, a, a number of different paths to really to think about how that future building from a tech perspective, as well as from the kind of the, the broader impacts as well go about it. Kat, how would you think about kind of overall space use? Where does that land in your world? We're noticing a trend that's termed flight to quality. Companies may have less square footage per person, but the square footage they do have is very, very high quality. And then other companies have more actually space per square foot because they're moving to more of those big open social areas with amenities to draw people back into a collaboration space. I see the office of the future being more social because people will perhaps work remotely when they're working on a spreadsheet, but then when they're working out some complicated problem, more and more I see people wanting to get together and go through ideas. I've also personally noticed that interviewing for new hires, it, mm. you can use real estate as a recruiting tool because you show if you have a mother's room that is immaculately designed, you're showing your values by implementing that. That's part of the S in ESG. And then people can get a feel on the social proof side. If there are all these awesome people that you see walking through what we call the social hub, you, you may be more likely to work there. It's not just salary. It's a big chunk of your life. So having that real estate be part of your recruiting tool, getting HR to comment, you know, human resources to comment on the design of a space so that it can be used as a recruiting tool. Interesting. And how does, so when I, when I think of this, I think of the decision-making that goes into it too. So Drew, in that sort of tenant app world or that occupier app world, how, like what's, what are the, some of the capabilities of those sorts of applications that are sort of handling some of this today? Yeah, so I think table stakes this year are everything of the basics from passively helping helping someone explore the space to, to borrow Will Ferrell from, from SNL verbiage to understand, you know, of those those many, many tasks that you have to do throughout the day, what is the the what is the right place to do the right work at the right time for my own needs? And you know, for a lot of people, especially more of the legacy building stock, that there's no technology built in anywhere. I feel like we've all felt the pain of I need to go take a phone call and I can't do it out in the open space. So even though I'm just doing laps, you, you physically walk around the floor plate looking for a quiet place. Whereas the the state of either mobile apps or, or web apps, or I think we're getting more to an automated place where a calendar is starting to recognize to say. You know, you don't have anyone invited to this meeting coming up soon. Do you need a, a phone room? Do you need a, a small huddle space just mm -hmm. to, to start to kind of drive that to say, you know, we want people to have choice and the technology needs to be able to help people explore what their options are. Because I think it's not always, it's not always obvious. We don't always have, you know, Kat and I both work at, at commercial real estate companies. So generally we, our offices are designed with, with, how we strategically advise clients. So, you know, I think if you walk in, in any one of our, our offices, especially those kind of a newer design to the last few years, there's no shortage of place to go collaborate with somebody. And it could be 
you know, let's go sit down and have a coffee and just kind of casually chat. We need a whiteboard, we need a video screen, any of those things. Um, the, the real interesting pieces to me as we look forward from just helping people utilize space is, is not only learning from how they do current state, and that's that's been around and has, has really matured probably the last three years of just the, the traditional the IoT sensor. If it's passive infrared for did someone use this room or not, just kind of mm -hmm. on or off, mm -hmm. to even deeper into we think about a conference room as an example, are people using it? Yes or no. If they are, how many people are in the space that kind of level two, and then even further, which kind of begs the, the data privacy question that Kat alluded to, what intent are people using the space? You know, are they, are they using any sort of video presentation? Are people using the space more often than not for, for whiteboarding and kind of brainstorming? Or is it primarily, <laughs> So is there a 10 seat conference room that the, the same two people use it to make phone calls three times a week? It right. really, it, it drives this sort of, if we can better learn from how people leverage space that in turn helps us design space to support them better in the future. And then eventually where we get to is the building starts to learn this on its own. And if, if the building, you know, the, the, the sentient being, if, if it can understand occupancy trends over time to the floor, to the space level, it can start automatically scheduling things on its own. So we talked a little bit earlier around, you know, in the pandemic buildings that they didn't learn enough to recognize that 5% of occupants were there. I think in the future, we're gonna start seeing if, if I have 10 floors on a building automation system and eventually sensors throughout the space start to figure out that Every Tuesday, we only need two of those floors. The building's not going to ask. It's just going to shut down eight of them and message everybody to say, hey, you had a, a meeting scheduled on the fifth floor. Well, we're not going to open that floor today. So we've rebooked you down to the, the second floor. Just go there instead. So eventually, and it's, gonna, it's a process, we'll get there. But eventually, the building just, just makes those decisions for us to, to uh, find the optimal occupancy on its own. Totally. And is there like an intermediate? Cause like it's making that decision based on I'm trying to minimize my carbon emissions given how you guys are using the space, right? So there's like the automation aspect of it that could be a little bit farther in the future, hopefully not. But is there an intermediate step that's like, you can book this here, but if you book this here, you, this one is the lower carbon option. Is that maybe an intermediate step that's, more of a tenant engagement piece. I also asked like, do I really want to be bothered with that when I'm trying to get my work done at the same time though? I think that's a tough, you're balancing two different outcomes that you're, that you're trying to accomplish at the same time there. It's interesting. I love the idea from an educational perspective and some major airlines are doing that now and it sparks a, a wider conversation for researching what's causing it to have lower carbon emissions. I like that concept. I think if just giving people the context and the option to choose the, the, the lower carbon footprint perspective. I mean, I do some development on the side and uh, some of these, the, the larger platforms, Google Cloud, Azure, AWS, some of them have started to flag and GCP does this on its own. If you have to pick which data center you want to run your, your code base out of, 
they'll put a little, a little leaf next to each one that is their 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 highest performers in terms of carbon and i because it, it really makes no difference in many cases like i'll pick the one with the leaf every single time oh yeah mm -hmm. so there's a lot there that we just talked about we talked about spatialization we talked about engaging the tenant we talked about building automation on the back end it really seems like that section of the day right is the most ripe for technology to sort of facilitate all these different outcomes at the same time because and this is what i always say like kind of like that the challenge between the two different outcomes we're going for us humans can't manage that level of a problem there's too many outcomes that we're trying to go for there and so that that piece to me feels like the biggest there, there's the biggest need for technology there that we talked about so far agreed i think it's is a building is, is a system of systems with hundreds if not thousands of competing priorities the, the, the fact that to your point james there's there are some times where you just want to get your work done and it, it really doesn't matter what the impact is stuff is critical it, it, it's got to happen and the, the the opportunity for technology is to find the way to balance all of those needs to make sure hey occupants we still got you you're good you've got your your space that you need it's comfortable however we're still going to make sure that we're taking care of of all the commitments on the energy and the carbon side as well because people can't do it on our own there's no way I don't want to add a more complicated piece or factor into this, but Kat, before we hit record, you were talking about there's an equity and inclusion aspect of this as well. Can you take us through that? Not to make it more complicated, but to, to, to say this is a really important piece of it as well. We've noticed that the size of conference rooms can directly impact the ability of early career professionals to get exposure to the type of meetings they need to progress in their career. Huh. And okay. so in that way, having more of the bigger rooms where people can sit in and listen on an important meeting contributes to equity and inclusion and having a larger cohort of those individuals who may not be represented at the highest levels of organizations, uh, allowing them to be in the meeting and get those skills, uh, communication skills, more of the soft skills by being included in those meetings, because it's very common nowadays that there's an important meeting and a, a number of people can't sit in because the room is too small. So we've seen the size of rooms directly affect the, ex the ability of people to access information and mentorship through attending meetings. And that's something I was educated about first with the Candida building, which I did not work on, but it was a very important living building in Georgia. So that's where I first learned about that concept. Interesting. So, and obviously we can't have massive conference. We can't have every meeting held in an auditorium, for instance, and we don't want everyone attending every meeting. So it's more, yeah, balanced looking at the, all of these types of inputs. Right. And there like. are opportunities to use technology to share space. So having some, some sort of option to pay $10 per hour per person to get access to a bigger meeting room. So maybe you don't have to have it on your real estate books so that you didn't have to pay for a bunch of conference rooms, but perhaps having more community sharing of those large meeting spaces so that they're not sitting idle too much. But then when you do have those meetings where it would be valuable to have a, a larger audience sit in that you can include them. 
Fascinating. Okay, okay, what's next? I feel like we're we're covered most of the day. What 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 else we got? One thing I noticed is that different people on my team have wildly different desires for heating, cooling, and daylighting. So there could be an aspect where if you're picking to meet at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday with Sue, Joe, and Bob, you find out what their preferences are and you sit in the room that is most in line with their preferences. That It also spe speaks to perhaps the feedback that the operations facilities managers could give to design teams because we have one meeting room in our office that has the best sunshine in it and it's full. 8 a.m. <laughs> to 5 p.m. And that's where you might have the infrared sensors and the anonymized data, and then also marry that with some of the more narrative feedback that would say, this is why I like this room, because it can be a little nuanced, and then incorporating that into the design for the next office. So there's continuous improvement. And that's the, the, the last point you made, Kat, around incorporating that into design. I think there, there are a lot of things that this one in particular about personalization of indoor environmental quality of just space experience in general, that at a certain point, all the technology in the world is not going to be able to facilitate for every single person inside the space, unless as a, a, a core requirement of that next space of that next building, you build into the mechanical systems, the daylighting systems, you know, your glazing on the windows, controllability of all these things, you build that in to say, we wanna be able to provide a full, a diversity of, of space, not only from how, how amenities are organized and seating capacities and intent and all that, but exactly what you're describing of, we need to be able to have, you know, for lack of a better term, a chilly room or like a bright room, just kind of, that, that has been a, a well point uh, for the last several years as well is we, we gone are the days of every room and every floor is 72 degrees flat full stop because that's not how that that's not how people find comfort it's all it's different for for everybody so I think I think it's both I think it's going to be design has to have that that intent that focus of we need to be able to support as many different combinations as possible. But then the technology is there as well, harkening back to, to memories at, at Comfy of, of taking in that personal direct feedback mm -hmm. in order to, to kind of get the spaces to a place where it's, oh, we know that cat, here's a room that meets your your learned preferences. You know, perhaps you should book more of your, your meetings in this room and then you'll be happy. And then the system can learn everybody else as well. So it's gonna be a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, what I'm not hearing from you guys is like, here's exactly how the office will be designed. I'm hearing more of this is the data that we're going to collect to aid the design process, which is interesting because if you think about the, the data collection piece, I mean, Drew, you were talking about occupancy sensors earlier where we had, you know, passive infrared to begin with. And then now we have, I think we have the ability to start to say, these people are whiteboarding using the data coming from an occupancy sensor, which is interesting to think about how much needs to change from the occupancy sensor hardware and, and analytics that we're providing today. Because right now it's just hit the API and give me a count of the number of people in this room. It's not hit the API and give me their activity today, which 
I don't think a lot of odd has to happen for it to change to get to that point, which is interesting to think about in the future. Yeah, I, I think technically on that point, technically with computer vision and the state of cameras right now, it's possible. It's the broader implication of, I mean, that requires, oh, big time. That, that is, it, that's not quite facial recognition, but it, it almost, it almost kind of is because you're still, you're running code to detect humans and the fact that they're moving. And that is, that's, that's not a place that, that we socially uh, or legally, I, I think, are there yet. So yeah. Because as soon as you, you as soon as you know that they're whiteboarding, you also know what else they're doing other than whiteboarding. Are they slacking off or whatever, you know, that gets into a serious privacy concern for sure. Okay, what else do we have? Continuing on our day. I think we're, we're to the point. I, I think we, we reverse the process. I mean, we assume yeah. that the day is over and exactly what we talked about at the top of, you know, what is the most sustainable, efficient, meets my needs way to, to get back home or, or back wherever I happen to be going. I think that's where it, where it kind of ties up. I think one piece I feel, I feel is missing from the day that we just walked through is I used to work at this co-working space and they had a catchphrase or saying, they called it serendipitous collisions. Like you didn't know who you were going to run into, right? And the ability to run into someone and say, do you want to grab lunch? Or just, just the ability to just meet new people and run into people is an aspect where yeah, it can happen, but does it happen in every office? Does it need to happen more? Probably. And can te technology help with that? What were you going to say, Kat? I don't know about technology helping it, but just classic running into people in the staircase and in the elevator has led to a lot of fruitful relationships with me. So I'm a big person who loves cities because the more, the more people you have, the more often you're going to be running into smart people. We've seen some architecture firms intentionally design staircases so that they have large landing areas, assuming that you are going to run into somebody and be able to have that serendipitous interaction. And that's somewhere where it'd be cool to use a technology to see if that is an occupied space. Interesting. Yeah. I would look at it as, I, I think it's, it's space design and space layout, I mean, a lot of the, the CBRE spaces that I go to where I run into people are intentionally designed for that purpose. Uh, generally, it's in the Chicago office, we have a big place called The Heart, and it's literally it's intended to be the heart of the office. And every single path from all of the heads down workspaces, the big sweeping staircases, they all end in the same spot. So you're just by statistics and probability, you're guaranteed to run into to more people just because that's that's where we walk. From a, a tech perspective, I I almost see it more more indirect, to the point of if if your office has the the technology that best supports what you need to do, and that gives you confidence to come in more frequently and gives other people confidence that they will have tech support, not tech support tech support, but the technology from the building to enable their work. That's going to bring you there in the first place. So I, I think it's both. It's the design of the space intentionally to, and I, I've heard a similar a similar phrase from a, a friend in the, the co-working world of, they're in the business of fostering serendipity. And that stuck, like I heard that eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So that that combination of, of, of space that just give me a place that I know is gonna support me, we're gonna run into each other more often than not, and that's great. 
I like it. Yeah, we don't have to have a tech solution to every problem. Okay, let's let's talk about themes here. Then, assuming our our day is kind of winding down, the themes I heard. So, Kat, you said education like fifty times, which is like I feel like that's one of the main themes that we, we're hearing here. Is like we we need to number one, engage occupants and then educate them on the changes that need to happen in the building. And change management goes along with that. Another piece, another theme, you guys interrupt me if you want, but another theme is around privacy and sharing data and whether we're gonna share data and whether we can get to the outcomes we're looking for while maintaining privacy, it seems like. And I, if I think after talking to both of you for the last, you know, this session and then our prep session, the main thing I'm hearing is like, we have to get to where the, the industry views these things as interconnected. It's not, we're, we're going for sustainability and we're doing space planning and we're engaging the occupant with an app. Like all of this feels, as we're talking about this, feels like it's coming together into sort of one holistic vision. Whereas it feels like the history of our industry is like this, like single-minded, you know, headlights view on one problem at a time. Yeah, that all that all resonates. It, it's why I think conversations like like these are more important in terms of the workplace itself has become more of a product than it has in years past. In that it has to continually iterate, it has to get better, it has to now win people over. Whereas three years ago it was a default, and now it has to be designed and operated as a destination to attract people to come in. And the only way to do that is to approach all sides of it. It's it's all of the things that that traditionally, to your point, get talked about from a, a technology perspective, but it's also policy and sustainability and everything else, kind of the, the nuances, if you will, that are, are super important that people may not always notice, but they, they start to appreciate once they're there. Absolutely. Kat, you have any closing comments? It's funny you caught on to the theme of education because everyone in my family is in education except for <laughs> myself. So. But you are too. <laughs> right. Because you can have all the technology in the world and then the users are the ones who may be able to implement it successfully. So that's why it's so important to have discussions like this and stick with it so that we can have those buildings that are smart and help all of the occupants stay healthy and sustainable. Absolutely. All right, let's close with carve-outs. So carve-outs are what uh, book, podcast, TV show, movie, could be from your personal and professional life, would you recommend the audience checks out? I'll go first. So Luis Munger from Schneider Electric recommended that I check out Severance and it's a show on Apple TV Plus. Drew's raising his hands. If it, I just wanted to bring it up in this conversation because it ties so heavily to the dark side. It's like it's like the anti day in the life. It's like the dark side of going to the office, right? I enjoy exploring the dark side a little bit, although I feel like I have a hard. Like I couldn't sleep last night, and I had I watched an episode before bed, and so. I, I feel like it, it, hurt, it like hurts my heart a little bit to watch it, but I still choose to do it and want to finish the, the series. It's so good. It, dark is a good way to put it. it. When you get to the season finale, let's talk. Okay. I've got thoughts. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, man. So my, my carve out is another podcast in addition to this one. I'm a huge 
cybersecurity fan. So I listened to a, a show called Darknet Diaries, cool. which is this guy named Jack Recider who interviews, like somehow he gets hackers from you know all walks of life, some of whom have been to prison, gets them to come on and tell them a story. And it's, some of them will make you sit up in terms of like, it, how, how have I not had my bank account stolen just mm -hmm. yet knowing that these, these brains are out there, but Darknet Diaries, Darknet Diaries. Cool. Highly recommended. All right. What about you, Kat? There's a fantastic podcast called ESG Insider by SMP Global, and it's posted weekly with a special guest talking on a deep dive topic related to ESG. So one week it could be greenhouse gas emissions accounting. Another time it could be the supply chain for a certain type of metal. I find it fascinating. And then I'm reading from green to ESG by Matt okay. Ellis, the CEO mm -hmm. of Measurable. It's really good. Cool. Yeah, he has a, a, a great Cretech talk, dem, a demo day talk on that concept from, from Green DSG, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I'm excited to check out that book as well. Well, thanks for those. Those are great recommendations. And thanks for you, to you both for, for coming on the show. Likewise. Thanks for having us. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.